No one wants to be number two. As the saying goes, second place is just the first place loser. No one wants to play second fiddle. But true freedom comes if you can stomach being number two. In God's economy, second place is where you want to be. In God's kingdom, second place is the place to be. If you can stomach it. True freedom comes when you can wholeheartedly admit that you are weak, that you are not number one, that you are in fact number two. Now, you may be inclined to push back against that because who wants to be weak? Who wants to be a loser? I mean, we want to be strong, don't we? We want to prove that we are formidable. I mean, we have swagger, and we want everybody to know it. But being number two never felt so good. Being number two is the best place to be. And in 1962, that's right where Avis car rentals were. They were stuck in the number two spot. But that's where they found out that being number two never felt so good. In 1962, Avis was in search of a new advertising campaign. Since its inception, the car rental company had always trailed behind the market leader, which was Hertz. Hertz sat at the top of the mountain, reigning as the number one car rental company for years. So Avis went to the ad agency Doyle, Dane, and Bernbach, the famous DDB, and DDB decided to embrace Avis's second-place status as a sneaky way to tout the brand's customer service. When you're only number two, you try harder, went the new tagline, or else. Here's an example of one of their ads from the time. It reads, Avis is only number two in rent-a-cars, so why go with us? We try harder. When you're not the biggest, you have to. We just can't afford dirty ashtrays or half-empty gas tanks, or worn wipers, or unwashed cars, or low tires, or anything less than seat adjusters that adjust, heaters that heat, defrosters that defrost. Obviously, the thing we try hardest for is just to be nice, to start you out right with a new car like a lively super torque Ford and a pleasant smile, to know, say, where you get a good pastrami sandwich in Duluth. Why? Because we can't afford to take you for granted. Go with us next time. The line at our counter is shorter. I love that. What brilliant copy. Avis introduced many ads like this in the 1960s, and the We Try Harder ads were an instant hit. Within a year, Avis went from losing $3.2 million to earning $1.2 million, the first time it had been profitable in more than a decade. From 1963 to 1966, as Hertz ignored the Avis campaign, the market share percentage gap between the two brands shrunk from 61 to 29 to 49 to 36. Terrified, Hertz executives projected that by 1968, Avis might need a new ad campaign because it would no longer be number two. But here's why their number two ad campaign was so brilliant. 
because acknowledging any sort of brand weakness used to be anathema to Madison Avenue in the 1960s. Why would you encourage your customers to wonder why you're stuck in second place? It's better to project unflappable confidence in your ads, right? Yes, so says conventional wisdom. But DDB flipped that marketing wisdom upside down. DDB actually became known for these judo-style ad campaigns in which a foe's putative strengths were turned against him. And when American cars were growing massive and show-offy and comically tail-finned, DDB pitched the Volkswagen Beetle with a now legendary 1961 print ad. Think small, read the copy, with a teensy image of the Beetle floating against an expanse of white space. It's ugly, but it gets you there, read another VW ad campaign. DDB partner Bill Bernbach had sized up the cultural moment. Americans were weary of earnest, bigger is better, 1950s style consumerism. The audience was receptive to a humble message that tweaked authority. Well, that's what the psalmist is doing in Psalm 125. We don't know who he is. He didn't sign his name off here, but he could have been a copywriter for DDB or any other Madison Avenue ad agency because he's pitching an Avis-style we're number two ad to you and me in this psalm. He's trying to sell you and me on humility. He's acknowledging brand weakness. He's projecting unflappable confidence in Yahweh. He's making his pitch to you that true freedom comes when you can stomach that you are number two. Psalm 125 wants you to be like Avis and just admit that you are weak. Just admit that you are number two. And here's his pitch to us. Collapse on Jesus. That's what it means to trust Jesus. It's to collapse on him and admit that you are not in control. The most profitable thing that you can do is admit that you are number two. That's what Avis did, and it brought them incredible profit, and it will bring you incredible spiritual profit to admit that you are not in control. It will bring you the peace and the rest that you long for when you finally fess up to this truth. Yes, being number two is better than you imagined. Being number two is to live. Being number two is to rest. Being number two is to be free. That's the pitch that the psalmist is making to you in Psalm 125. So look at Psalm 125, beginning in verse 1, and hear the word of the Lord. Those who trust in Yahweh, those who trust in the Lord, are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so Yahweh surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. And so the psalmist is explaining what it looks like to be number two in this song of ascents. He's encouraging the pilgrims who were traveling to Jerusalem to worship Yahweh. He's encouraging them to sing this song on their journey. And he's reminding them to think small like the VW ad campaign. 
He's telling them that those who trust in the Lord, those who admit their weakness, those who have nothing but need, they are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved. Now, it's strange how God's economy works, isn't it? Weak people are strong. Those who admit their need are the ones who are not moved. In the kingdom of God, weak is the new strong. It's those who place their faith, however weak it is, in Yahweh, who become the ones who cannot be budged or shoved or pushed off the scenes of history. Weak people who trust in Jesus alone are like Mount Zion. They cannot be moved. So the psalmist employs the imagery of Mount Zion, which was the fortress mountain citadel that David had captured, and later it came to refer to all of Jerusalem. The city of Jerusalem was built on this hill in the southern mountain range in Israel, and the temple was built at its crest. And on three sides there were valleys, but on the other side of the valleys there was this a ring of mountain ranges, some even higher than the Temple Mount. And Mount Zion was nestled in between these protective ridges. And this is where the temple was built. This was where Yahweh, the sovereign Lord, lived, if you will. And this was common in the ancient Near East. Any god worth his salt was worshipped at the top of mountains. Major deities like El Baal and Anat, for example, each had their own sacred mountain for a home. And they did this because the top of the mountain was the closest contact point between heaven and earth. <coughs> so Yahweh keeps in step with the ancient Near Eastern culture by appearing on Mount Sinai. This was where Israel would have expected Yahweh to be worshipped. He lives on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. Gods were worshipped on mountaintops, which is why Jeroboam in 1 Kings 12 built a temple site in northern Israel to rival the one in Jerusalem. He chose the city of Dan because it was located near Mount Hermon. And this is why there was a showdown between Yahweh and Baal, the god of the Canaanites, in 1 Kings 18, when Elijah challenged the prophets of Baal. Where did that happen? On Mount Carmel. Mountaintops were the primary worship spaces in the ancient Near East. It was also believed that as long as the deity <coughs> or God who lived in his or her temple, as long as they lived in his or her temple, then the city was invulnerable to attack. In fact, there is some ancient Sumerian poetry which captures this idea in a lament for the city of Ur. The poem speaks of the God's temple within the city of Ur as the lofty, untouchable mountain. And that's why the psalmist employs the imagery of the mountain and Yahweh's presence here in Psalm 125. As long as Yahweh was there, Israel was safe. As long as the God they trusted in was there, as long as he was at home, then the nation of Israel was safe. And all those who trust in Jesus are like that. To trust, the Hebrew word batak in Jesus, it means to find security in him. To feel secure, to feel confident in his love. The Hebrew word batak means to lean. And so to trust Jesus is to lean on him. To trust Jesus is to admit that you aren't number one, but it is also to be safe. And it doesn't matter what the size of your faith is, so long as that faith 
is in Jesus. It's the person you trust in that matters, not the size of the faith of the person who's doing the trusting. It's Jesus that is crucial. It's who you are trusting in that makes all the difference in the world. Justification, being declared righteous by God, justification is through faith. It's by faith, not on account of it. It's who we are connected to through faith that saves us. Interestingly, the Hebrew word here for trust, betak, is related to an Arabic verb that means to throw oneself down on one's face. The idea is that you lie spread eagle in complete reliance. It's the same word that is used in the famous Bible verse, Proverbs 3, 5. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. We know that and we say that. We quote that, don't we? It means to throw yourself down on your face and rest with all of your heart. To lie down spread eagle, resting in Yahweh with all of your heart. Whatever it is that's going on in your heart, you're just saying, I'm trusting in you because I'm not in control. I'm number two. It's to collapse on Jesus with all of your heart. That's the idea with the word here, trust. Those who throw themselves down on their faces and rest in Yahweh are like Mount Zion. Those who lie down spread eagle resting in the promises of the gospel are like Mount Zion. Those who collapse on Yahweh are Mount, like Mount Zion and will never be moved. A.W. Tozer said, pseudo-faith always arranges a way out to serve in case God fails it. Real faith knows only one way and gladly allows itself to be stripped of any second way or makeshift substitutes. For true faith, it is either God or total collapse. And not since Adam stood up on the earth has God failed a single man or woman who trusted in him. Let me read that last sentence again because some of you may need to hear it. And not since Adam stood on the earth has God failed a single man or woman who trusted in him. The psalmist is calling on you and me today to trust Jesus with everything. I mean, everything in your life. Everything that's weighing you down today. It's on your mind, in your heart. Trust him with everything. He's calling on you and me to trust Jesus with everything that shames us. To trust Jesus with everything that terrifies us. To trust Jesus with everything that holds us back. He's telling us that true freedom comes when we let our full weight fall down on Jesus. You can be like unmovable Mount Zion if you're willing to collapse. If you can stomach being number two. Trust the psalmist. Being number two never felt so good. Rest, peace, confidence, joy, It can all be yours if you just collapse on Jesus. And so, why not trust the one who loves you even more than you love you? To trust Jesus is to admit that you're number two. To trust Jesus is to admit that you need a savior. You need a redeemer. You need a defender. And when you do trust in Jesus, 
When you place your faith in him and what he has done for you, then the Lord comes and surrounds you and he never leaves. He never leaves. There is no, ladies and gentlemen, Yahweh has left the building. The gospel knows none of that. Just as Jerusalem is surrounded by mountains, so too Christians are surrounded by Jesus forever. We are the city of Jerusalem, surrounded by our defender, and nothing can get past him. No one is as safe as God's people. And that's why being number two never felt so good. That's why being number two is better than you could imagine. Because Jesus surrounds us. And no one can touch or harm Yahweh's people unless their defender allows it. And being by, surrounded by Jesus implies what? That we are weak. Who needs to be surrounded by a defender? Weak people do. Weak people have to trust. They have to rely on someone or something for outside help. And so admitting your weakness, admitting your need, is the key to gospel freedom. Our strength comes from the one we trust. We lean on Jesus when we aren't strong, which is always. That means then that being scared, scared about the future, means feeling helpless, feeling hopeless, feeling frail. What it does is it takes you to Jesus. Despair takes you to Jesus. Suffering takes you to Jesus. Being despondent takes you to Jesus. Feeling overwhelmed takes you to Jesus. These situations and these circumstances that we fear and that we dread are actually what usher us to the one that we love. They usher us to Jesus. This is the pathway home, Grace. When you find yourself in these places, when you're overwhelmed with life, marriage, parenting, work, what's going to happen in the future? When you find yourself in these places, you open your eyes, you open the eyes of faith, and who do you see? You see Jesus. You discover that he's there. He always has been there. He's the one surrounding you. He's the one defending you. It's true. We don't like to admit that we're weak. I mean, we kind of tip our hat to that because we're Bible-believing Christians here and throughout the years, Grace has had God-centered pastors who keep reminding us that you know we are weak and Jesus is strong and so we believe that here. I believe that is a part of our DNA as a church. We admit that we're weak. We tip our hat to that and say yes. But when the rubber meets the road, we don't want to be weak, do we? We know his power is perfected in weakness, but we don't like weakness, do we? I don't like weakness. Here's proof that we don't really believe we're weak, is how do we start our days? Do we really start our days and say, God, if you don't help me, I'm going to mess this thing up. I'm an idiot, Jesus, and if you don't give me some wisdom, I'm really going to mess up my life today, and I need you desperately. How many of us say that before we get out of bed? Even if, you do, even if you're a good Christian and you do that, okay, and you have your quiet time, okay, do you come back to him at noon and say, I need you? I still need you. Oh, I desperately need you. And then when you get that 2.30 feeling and you're dragging, you're, you just got to press through the rest of the day. Do you really stop and say, Jesus, I need you? And then throughout the rest of the day. So I know we, we tip our hat to it and we say, yes, we're weak. But when the rubber meets the road, do we really believe it? 
I think we push back against it because no one wants to be weak. Listen, you can't impress Jesus with your swagger. He's not impressed by it. So you might as well just collapse. We don't like to admit that we're weak, but we know that's what ushers us to Jesus. That's what attracts Jesus to us. God surrounds weak people, weak Christians, weak churches. God wants us to think small. God wants us to embrace the fact that we are number two. But why does God want a bunch of second-rate people? Why does God surround weak people? Why doesn't he sit at the, the cool kids' table at lunch? Here's why. God picks weak, helpless people so that only he gets the glory. He surrounds us because we are weak, because we need surrounding. God picks people who are so far gone, so weak, so helpless, so stupid, so that he gets the glory. Listen, if Jesus was picking teams, he'd pick the worst players first. He'd pick the kids that nobody wants. That's just how he rolls. Why? Because then he gets all the glory. So why do you fear being weak? That's how Jesus shows off. That's how Jesus shows off in your life is when you're weak. What do you, what do you fear being weak? Jesus is saying, accept your weakness and let me show off. Let me show off my power. Let me show off my glory. I mean, don't you want God to be glorified in your life? Here's how. Weakness. Admitting your weakness and then Jesus says, now watch me show off. Jesus shows off when he picks you to play on his team. He does all the work, he scores all the points, and you get the trophy. Maybe Jesus started that whole, every kid on the team gets a trophy. I don't know. He scores all the points, you get all the trophy, and he gets all the glory. That's Christianity. Jesus loves to assemble a ragtag team of idiots because then he gets the glory. He picks ragamuffins and misfits because all the glory then goes to him. That's what Jesus does. He gives very weak, ordinary people his very best, his righteousness. Jesus gives the worst sinners in the world his very best, his righteous life. He gives his very best, meaning he gives us himself. Jesus only gives his best to the number twos in this world, to those who trust in him and him alone, to those who need surrounding, to those who need a defender, to those who can stomach not being number one. And Jesus not only surrounds them, he looks after them to work for their good. Look at verse 3. For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, lest the righteous stretch out their hands to do wrong. Do good, O Yahweh, to those who are good and to those who are upright in their hearts. But those who turn aside to their crooked ways, Yahweh will lead away with evildoers. Peace be upon Israel. The idea with verse 3 is that Yahweh will not let evil rulers hold sway over his people forever. The scepter of wickedness here refers 
to government rule. It's referring to wicked rulers. It's referring to a wicked government. And it could be that the psalmist has in mind here either wicked Israelite kings or wicked nations, both of which Israel experienced in her history. The nation of Israel suffered under wicked kings who claim to love Yahweh. Some of David's descendants were very wicked. And at times, the nation suffered under the control of wicked foreign governments. But the psalmist's point here is that Yahweh will not let this continue forever. He will be merciful and he will step in so that his people do not give in to sin. In other words, Jesus is not going to let you slip away permanently. Isn't that good news? Jesus is not going to let you slip away permanently. You can try. Hey, take it from me. I've been there and done that. I got the t-shirt. It says idiot on the front. Because I've tried and I've tried to run from him. He knows shortcuts. He knows how to step out of nowhere in a back alley when you're running from him. And to embrace you and say, come home. Jesus is not going to let you slip away permanently. That's what the psalmist is saying here. He loves you too much. He isn't going to let you go. God is bent on making us more like his son Jesus. God is invested in us. And that's why he intervenes. That's why he will not let sin and wickedness have the last word. Verse 3 here shows us our weakness. It shows us. Verse 3 is is a mirror, and when you look at it, it's telling you how weak you are. Verse 3 shows us our weakness. If Jesus did not intervene, then we would give in to sin and the pleasures of this world. That's how sinful we really are. If Jesus didn't, didn't intervene, then we would run away. We would choose sin more. We would chase after other lovers if his grace did not pull us back in. And that's why the psalmist prays for God to be gracious in verse 4. He's praying for God to be good to his people. He's praying that God would intervene and show himself as he is good. And here's the proof that Jesus is good. Jesus gives his best to the worst. Jesus gives his righteousness to sinners. That's the only way that the psalmist can refer to anyone being morally upright, right? God's people, the church, we are no different than our pagan neighbors. We're sinners just like they are. The difference is that we've been bought with the blood of Jesus. The difference is that we're in union with Jesus. We have been justified by faith, by trusting in Jesus, by falling on our faces, by laying down spread eagle and resting in the promises of the gospel. That's the difference. Otherwise, we sin just like they do. We're self-absorbed like they, like they are. Jesus offers his best to the worst sinners. But those in verse 5, those people will not accept his grace. Instead of trusting in Yahweh, they turn away. So they are led away with all evildoers. I think the psalmist has in mind here fellow Israelites who are doing the turning away here. He's thinking of Israelites who can't stomach being number two. They won't bow the knee to Yahweh. They're a part of the covenant community But they don't belong to the covenant God, Yahweh, because they have not been united to him by faith. And that's a sad place to be, to be a part of the church, 
to hear the good news week after week, to sit under the preaching of the word of God, to taste it of God's goodness as the preacher of Hebrews describes him in Hebrews chapter 6, and then to reject Jesus. How sad. J.C. Ryle said, The saddest road to hell is the one that runs under the pulpit, past the Bible, and through the middle of warnings and invitations. The saddest road to hell is in here. It's the one that runs under the pulpit and past the Bible, right down through the middle of warnings and invitations. Warnings of Jesus saying, don't go that way, you're going to hurt yourself. Trust me, I'm wise. Don't go, don't go down that path. You're going to ruin your life. You're going to ruin your family. Don't do it. It's a lie. It's a trap. Come. Come to me and find rest. Come and taste and be satisfied. That's the saddest road to hell, is to hear the warnings and the invitations from Jesus and to just keep on cruising. It's the saddest road to hell, to hear of how good Jesus is and then to walk away. And that's the people in verse 5. They have turned away from Yahweh and they will be led away with all evildoers. Is that you today? Have you heard all you can about Jesus and you don't want to hear anymore? Come home. Turn back to Jesus. He will have you. He welcomes you with open arms. Don't run away. Don't be led away to hell with all evildoers. Taste and see that the Lord is good. And maybe that's why the psalmist prays for peace here for Israel in verse 5 at the end of the psalm. Maybe the psalmist knows what it's like to have a wayward child, a prodigal son or daughter. Maybe he knows the pain of seeing people who grew up in church just walk away from it all. And so he prays for peace in verse 5. And sometimes that's all you can do as a parent. You just pray for peace. You pray that Jesus would be good to your children in spite of their stupid decisions. To quote my wife Heather, she said this, you can identify more with the heart of God when you have wayward children. He has gone before. Love for those in the trenches. Second Chronicles 7.14 is his heart. It's true. You can identify more with the heart of God when you have wayward children. Or when, when you have wayward children, when you have wayward friends, wayward loved ones, wayward family members. You can identify with the heart of God, but know that God has gone before you. And perhaps that's when you know most that you are in the number two position. You realize there's nothing you can do. You realize there's nothing you can do to change your children or to change that person that grew up in church and is walking away from Jesus. You realize, I can't do anything. And so you have to get spread eagle before the Lord and you learn to collapse on Jesus because there's nowhere else to go. There's nowhere else to go. All you can do is pray that God would be good to your child. All you can do is admit that you are number two and that you can't change your child or anyone's heart. Yes, we are safe. We are secure in Jesus. But sometimes it doesn't feel like that at all, does it? Sometimes our experience is contrary to Psalm 125. And so what do you do then? It's one thing to read this psalm, something completely different when you don't feel it. It's one thing to read it in your quiet time and get excited. 
It's a whole other thing when you don't feel the truth of this passage. It's one thing to believe it on Sunday, but what about on Thursday night? If your experience is contrary to Psalm 125, you keep on trusting Jesus. That's what you do. You pray verses 4 and 5. When your experience is contrary to Psalm 125, you lean on what you know about Jesus. When it seems like you're being moved and pushed and shoved around by life, lean on the God of Psalm 125. When it feels like the scepter of the wicked is bearing down on you, lean on the God of Psalm 125. When you don't feel upright in your heart because you know your sin and you're plagued by your past, lean on the God of Psalm 125. Lean on what you know about Jesus when you can't feel and when you can't see. Scotty Smith said, when your heart is really hurting, don't look for someone to blame. Look for someone to trust. And that someone is Jesus. You can trust Jesus. When your heart is really hurting, collapse on Jesus. Collapse on him. Let, let all your weight fall on him. All your burdens, let them fall on him. Just collapse and rest in his goodness and rest in his mercy, rest in his grace, rest in his faithfulness, rest in his sovereignty. Now think about this. Who is doing all of the action in this psalm? Who's doing all of the action in Psalm 125? It's Yahweh. It's the Lord. It's Jesus. He surrounds. He protects. He doesn't let the scepter of wickedness run amok. He keeps his people from walking away. He does good to his children. He leads away the evildoers. He gives peace. It's all Jesus. What does the psalmist do? He collapses. He trusts. He, he rests. He prays, yes, but his prayer is one of trust. So all he is really doing here is trusting. He's just collapsing, collapsing on Jesus. He's resting on Jesus. He's spread eagle resting on Jesus. He's doing what Jesus would later say in John chapter 6, verses 28 through 29. Then they said to Jesus, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Believing is the work that Jesus requires. Now, Jesus is not saying that we don't ever do anything. As Dallas Willard has, says, has said, grace is not opposed to effort, it is opposed to earning. And that's what Jesus means here. He's not saying that we don't do anything ever, Duh, right? We, we, we do stuff. We have to do stuff. He's saying the real work is to believe in the one that God the Father has sent, to believe and to trust what he has done for us through his life, death, and resurrection. It's trusting in Jesus' work for us in fulfilling the law and not what we do for him. But is there effort on our part? Yes. We have to put sin to death. We have to believe God's promises. We have to do stuff. We have to brush our teeth, don't we? Please brush your teeth. But we don't have to do anything to receive Jesus, but to believe, to collapse on him. We can't earn his love. It's a gift. When you come to Jesus, what you have to do is you have to admit that you are not number one. 
you have to admit weakness. You have to think small. And then you think about how this will change your relationships. If you just say, I'm going to be number two in this relationship, in my marriage, in my family, in my workplace, in my neighborhood, I'm going to humble myself. Humility is the way of Jesus. Our nature just pushes back against that. Our world says, what? And yet the king of the universe, the wisest man that ever lived, says, I take the path of humility. We have to learn to think small. And there's certainly no we try harder when we become a part of the people of God. You come and you rest. You rest in the righteousness that Jesus gives. You rest in the fact that we are justified by faith, by trust in Christ alone. To collapse on Jesus is the only place to be. To collapse on Jesus is to embrace being number two. And in the 1960s, Avis embraced being number two, and they were free. Here's an ad they ran which contained the Avis Manifesto. Number two-ism, the Avis Manifesto. We are in the rent-a-car business, playing second fiddle to a giant. Above all, we've had to learn how to stay alive. In the struggle, we've also learned the basic difference between the number ones and the number twos of the world. The number one attitude is, don't do the wrong thing. Don't make mistakes and you'll be okay. The number two attitude is, do the right thing. Look for new ways. Try harder. Number two-ism is the Avis doctrine, and it works. The Avis customer rents a clean, new Opal Record with wipers wiping, ashtrays empty, gas tank full from an Avis girl with a smile firmly in place. And Avis itself has come out of the red into the black. Avis didn't invent number two-ism. Anyone is free to use it. Number twos of the world arise. Anyone is free to use number two-ism. Free to be weak. And we see Jesus adopt this number two position in the incarnation. Not that Jesus plays second fiddle to God the Father, because he doesn't. Jesus does not play second fiddle to God the Father. He is worthy of the same glory as the Father and the Holy Spirit. But in the incarnation, Jesus adopted the number two Avis position. He humbled himself, the king of glory, for sinners and rebels like us. Listen to the Jesus manifesto in Philippians 2. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
That's what this table that is spread before us today is all about. It's about Jesus humbling himself for us. It's about how grace flowed downhill to sinners like us. It's about how Jesus humbled himself and became number two in the incarnation so that he could bring us to God, so that he could give his best to the worst. The Lord's Supper is an invitation to you and me to come and collapse on Jesus. The beauty of the gospel is that the king serves us. The king dons an apron and serves rebels, rebels that he has adopted into his family that are now his children. That's crazy. That's crazy good. That's crazy good news. Here at the Lord's Supper, at this table, the king descends and he serves us. That's amazing. And if that doesn't knock you down to number two, I don't know what will. Let's take a moment and confess our sins and then we'll celebrate our Savior. Father, we do admit our sinfulness. Psalm 25 has exposed us as weak, needy people who need a redeemer and a savior and a defender. And Father, we've looked for that redemption and that salvation and that healing and that hope in a million places. But we can say, you're the only one that satisfies because you're the only one that is true. And so we confess our sins and we ask you to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We repent, we turn from it, and we turn to your son Jesus this morning, Father. And we say thank you for your mercy and thank you for your grace. And now may the Holy Spirit impress the gospel deeper into our souls so that we would love you, serve you, and then go love and serve others. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.